Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean and Beyond podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Well, today we're going to have an interview with Richard Lysett. Richard's been writing me off and on since 2017, and he's a he's a longtime listener to the podcast, and he's been sailing locally in Britain for quite a few years. So we're going to hear about him and his experiences on learning to sail and his recent charters in the Greek islands. Richard is a photographer, and I'm going to put links to his website in the show notes. But before we get to that, I want to thank our sponsor, Sailrite, and then I want to answer a question. Since 1969, Sailrite has been equipping you with everything you need to sew for your boat, from bimini's and boat covers to upholstery work and even sewing your own sails. Sailrite is your one-stop shop for fabric, sail and canvas kits, tools, hardware, and sewing supplies. Sailrite is also the maker of the patented Ultrafeed sewing machine a portable heavy-duty machine that can handle all the sewing jobs for your boat and more. A passionate crew of DIYers, Sailrite produces high-quality, free how-to videos to empower their customers to turn their sewing dreams into a reality. Get ready for today's mailbag. I like getting emails from my friends out there. So if you have any thoughts, comments, suggestions, or questions, write me franz1 at medsailor.com or use the contact form at the website. Now for today's emails. So this is a question that came in a while back, and I tried to address it, but I asked that anybody that was listening that they had better information to share it with the group. And the question was, it was from Phil Quark of Sailing Vessel Southern Cross. He, he wrote, Hi, Franz, I really enjoy your podcast. We are Americans and bringing our sailing vessel, our Hylus 46, to the Med next year for extended cruising. What are the current rules for length of stay for us in the EU? How long can we stay before having to leave? And how long must we be out do all EU countries really enforce this? How about Turkey? Thanks for any advice and info. Maybe we can meet up next summer from Phil Cork. So I got an email from Jonathan Wexler, who continues to respond to questions and, and help out the podcast. And Jonathan wrote, Hi, Franz. This link is to a travel forum and gives some pretty clear information about the Schengen for your recent American inquiry. The count is either simple 90 in, 90 out, with no leaving the Schengen zone, or the hideously obscure in-and-out backward count method. If they intend to enter, leave, and re-enter, they have to use some obscure counting method backward from the date of departure. Bottom line is, unless you plan on entering and not leaving for 90 days, or like to play Russian or rather Schengen roulette, you will use an online calculator. It is very easy to mess up your dates, and if you get an SOB at the border, they can make you miserable. Be aware that each country feels free to interpret the calculations in their own special way. No one online calculator 
is universally accepted, including the one on the EU website. This is because despite mandating Schengen and its periods, there was no mandated or agreed upon calculator. This is from a Romanian immigration officer who I've noticed was using a Norwegian calculator. And then he gives a link to a Rick Steves article on understanding the Schengen travel rules, and I will put that link in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, don't you love the EU? How straight and uh, opaque they are? Anyway, that's all I can do for you on that question. Now, one of our listeners, in fact, the one I'm going to be interviewing today, Richard Lysett, has, has been communicating with me off and on since around 2017. And he asked a couple questions a while back that I think I addressed. But I'm going to take a moment to re-answer those questions in case those new listeners haven't heard the, uh, the answers. So Richard wrote, I've listened to all of your podcasts. It was the first podcast I ever started listening to. And we've corresponded a handful of times over the years. But a point I don't recall you talking about or anyone else's podcast since I've listened to it is what happens when you anchor out and dingy in is how you secure your tender. Are there special places for tenders when ashore? Are they at risk being stolen much? Do you immobilize the engine somehow? Do you lock the tender to the key somehow? Are you ever charged to moor your tender somewhere? Well, let's deal with that question first. The only time I've had any damage to my dinghy done was when I was anchored in Sevilla. Well, not anchored. I was tied up at a marina in Sevilla, right in the city of Sevilla that doesn't exist anymore, by the way. And I'd taken the dinghy up the river to get closer to a store that I wanted to shop at. And so I tied it up to the shore, close to a bridge, and a bunch of teenage kids were jumping overboard and it got onto my dinghy and started trying to play with it. Now, my engine had been locked with a padlock, and I'd taken the ignition safety wristband with me. So they couldn't start the dinghy. Well, they could have if they'd really wanted to. You, there's ways around that. But they, they just took off the cover, and and um, I don't know if they stole the cover I can't remember I don't think they stole the cover but they broke one of the uh, latches that holds the outboard cover on and it's been that way ever since as far as anywhere else I've been I've always kept my dinghy motor the outboard motor secure with a padlock and I used to be pretty anal early on I used to have an actual chain that I could chain it to someplace and lock the chain lock lock the chain that held the dinghy that was attached to the dinghy with another padlock. But I quit doing that a long, long time ago. And I just tie it up, and I've never had any problems with it, except for that one incident in Spain. So nowhere in the Mediterranean have I ever had any problems with uh, the dinghy being stolen, even though it's out there and people could easily steal it. Uh, as a general rule, I don't even take the ignition cord with me, the, the wrist safety cord with me. I just keep it attached there. They're doesn't seem to be a lot of theft in the Mediterranean. Unlike, I hear you need to make sure in the Caribbean, everything is locked down tighter than a drum. So in Turkey, never had any problems. In Spain, only the one incident that I talk about. I never had any problem in Italy or Sardinia. So now I haven't had any bad experiences with people stealing my dinghy or tying up my dinghy. I've tied up my dinghy right in front of other boats that are moored. 
and I've never had any problem tying up my dinghy pretty much anywhere I've gone. I just try to make sure I'm not blocking somebody. And if I get to an area where there are a lot of dinghies tied up, I make sure I have a long painter so that people can push my boat aside and get up to unload. You'll find places where you'll have, oh, 10 or 15 dinghies tied to the same cleat. And to get to your dinghy, you've got to uh, move it through the fleet, so to speak. And if you tie your dinghy up tight, it makes it difficult for anybody else to gain access to their own dinghy. So if you do tie up where there's a lot of dinghies tied up, make sure you leave your painter fairly long so that people can move in and out and push your boat back and forth as they need to get on and offshore. I think that'll answer the question on the dinghy. Then you asked, also overwintering in your water tank, how do you look after or sterilize it? Do you leave it full or empty over winter? You mentioned in your planning podcast that you drink your tank water after filtering it. Have you ever had any issues? It's generally recommended to all Europeans traveling to Greece, Spain, and the local area to buy bottled water, as there may be bugs that the locals have adapted to, but it would give us bad stomach. As you can see, Turkey is in red. And he gave me a link to a travelhealthpro.org website. Well, no, I've, um, <laughs> the last couple of years I've gotten lazy and I tend to buy bottled water when I'm on shore. But I always have my Katadyne hand filter that I can always use my, my stored fresh water on the boat if push came to shove. I, it, it's not that big a deal. I tend to use my water on board mostly for, washing dishes and cleaning and I do have a big water tank and if I ran out of bottled water I'd just use my catadine filter and filter it as I have in the past. Also I do use the water for cooking so if I'm boiling potatoes I'll use sort of maybe half salt water if I'm in a clean salt water area and half fresh water from my my water tank or pasta I'll use a little bit of salt water and some fresh water from my tank. So I'd be boiling it in those situations. What I do notice is I do develop a little algae at the bottom of the tank. And while it's not dangerous, it sort of looks gross to have a few little pieces of what might look like moss or algae floating around in your pasta water. I dealt with that. The best way to deal with that is to fill up your water tank, throw some chlorine in there, let it sit for a while and then drain your water tank. And sometimes that takes care of it, sometimes it doesn't. You might have to redo that. But I never leave my tank full over the winter. That would be an invitation to lots of things growing in the water. And also, if the water freezes, it can expand and bust your tank. In Utah, if I left water in a tank in Utah over the winter, there was there is no question I wouldn't have a tank come spring. It would expand and uh, burst the seams of any tank in Utah. We see that. That's a big problem in Utah. Uh, in fact, over the weekend, I had freezing pipes of my summer home, and we had to deal with that. So, no, you don't leave water in your tanks over the winter. At least I sure as heck don't. Now, maybe in the Mediterranean, you don't have to think about freezing, but that's something I always think about. And then you ask one final question. You said, I mentioned a while back that my podcast being nibbled away as you upload new ones. You mentioned that they were all on your website to listen to. And that is the case. So if you go to the iTunes directory or your podcast directory, they're going to get their feed as a general rule from the iTunes podcast directory, which is the, the mother of all podcast directories. 
and they're going to list what is listed in the RSS feeds for my podcast. And I think I've got 50 podcasts available. I'm not sure exactly what it is. It might be 10, it might be 25, it might be 50 podcasts that are available that you can download through the directories. Well, we're at episode 199 with this particular podcast. And so if you want to go back and listen to the full catalog, the only way to do that is to go, well, there's actually a couple ways to do that. The easiest way is to go onto my website and actually buy the downloads uh, through Gumroad, and I sell them in blocks of 20. So you can get episodes 1 to 20, 20 to 40, and so forth. And I think I sell them for $10 each. Uh, Or you can go and go back through the full podcast posts. You can go to the post or the podcast post and go back as far as you want and start downloading them directly from the website. Either way. You can also buy the full bundle uh, up to, I think, episode 160 or 170 in one bundled purchase. And all that information is available at the website, medsailor.com. And then you suggested that I might interview you, and that's what we're going to be doing today. So let's get on to that interview. That's it for today's emails. If you have any thoughts, suggestions, or comments or questions, write me franz1 at medsailor.com or use the contact form at the website. If you want to do me a big favor, you could become a Patreon of the podcast. I have a few listeners out there that are already patrons, and I'm looking for more. If you have some spare change that you could throw my way once in a while, please sign up at patreon.com backslash medsailor. And one more thing, if you like the podcast, I would really appreciate it if you could take the time to write a review of the podcast on iTunes or in your favorite podcast directory. All right, let's get on to today's episode. Before we get on to this interview, I want to my listeners know that I'll be taking a month trip visiting New Zealand. This is a trip of a lifetime. My wife has always wanted to visit New Zealand. So we're going to be starting out at the 1st of February on the Southern Island, starting in Christchurch and spending about three weeks visiting the Southern Island. We'll be renting a camper van, (laughs) not much different than a boat as far as space, and visiting a lot of areas in the Southern Island. And then we're going to hop up to Auckland and uh, visit my friend Doug Schmuck, who lives up in the Bay of Islands in northern New Zealand, or the North Island of New Zealand and north of Auckland. And so if there's any of my New Zealand listeners that want to get together, let's see if we can make it happen. I would love to meet some more of my listeners who happen to be in New Zealand. So write me, Franz1 at MedSailor, if you are interested. All right, let's get on to my interview with Richard. I'm on Skype with Richard Lysett. Richard is a longtime listener to the podcast, and he wrote me, I'm looking back at this original email you wrote me way back in 2017, (laughs) and uh, we decided just to get online and talk about your projects and what you're doing and what sort of sailing you do, Richard. So let's, uh, first of all, establish a geographical location where we're talking to you from. Okay, I'm in the middle of England, a place called Kidderminster, which is an old carpet town manufacturer, um, about 18 miles to the west of Birmingham in the centre of England. 
All right. Not a lot of sailing out there, is there? No, sadly not. (laughs) So I get my my weekly or regular fix on a laser dinghy at a lake about half an hour's drive from me. So I do a bit of racing uh, when I can, when I get a weekend off work. (laughs) All right. So I've got Google Earth open because that's sort of my standard operating procedure is to uh, zoom in on where we're talking about. So spell the name of the town for me. Kidderminster, K-I-D-D-E-R-M-I-N-S-T-E-R. Okay, there it is. And I wouldn't have never gotten that from what you just told me then. Okay. Yeah, okay. All right. So tell me about your sailing experience and what you like to do then. Right, okay. Well, I came to sailing late in life, uh, nearly eight years ago. Um, I used to work in the British Civil Service, uh, and they have something called IDOR, which is the Interdepartmental Offshore Regatta. And it was advertised in the monthly civil service magazine or one of the um, sports club magazines in the civil service. And uh, in that, it talked about uh, a five-day regatta off the south coast of England uh, in Cowes, which, uh, if and no one's heard of it, it's the central mecca of all British-UK racing sailing. Uh, more boats there, I think, than almost anywhere on the planet. Um, and uh, it sounded like a good idea at the time, so I put my name down for it and... Uh, went down to a place called Hamble, which is uh, a very, very small village um, about 10 miles north of the Isle of Wight on the south coast, where there are lots and lots of uh, boats of all shapes and sizes. And we met there on a Sunday evening. We went for a pizza or something at the local uh, restaurant. And the next morning, we sailed across in the worst weather imaginable for a first sailor's trip on a boat. The rain was horizontal, and it was just blowing, and I got all my wet weather clothes wet and my dry clothes wet, and it should have put me off sailing for life. Uh, But it didn't. Uh, After the week of sailing, my skipper um, had said I was a bit of a natural at it, and he recommended that I do some dinghy sailing because there's only so much you could feel and experience in controlling a boat, uh, a large boat. So you're only doing one part of the job on a large boat. So doing a bit of dinghy sailing was always recommended to anyone. So uh, I did that about six months later um, at another local lake to me, really very shallow lake at a stately home. And you could really literally walk across the lake. I think it was about four foot deep across 90% of it. Um, but that wasn't too bad. So uh, I went back the next year and the next year, and I've been doing that every year. I've, been, I've done that, uh, I think, eight times now every June. And then I've built on it by doing extra uh, escapades and uh, trips with other sailors on other boats in different parts of the world. All right. So I'm going to try to zoom in on where did you say your first sail was out of? So it was out of a place called Hamble, um, which is just to the south east of Southampton. Okay. Um, Oh, there it is. Hamble, Hamble, England. Okay. Yes. Oh, yeah, it's down there. So did you go across the English Channel then? Yes, so uh, kicked off in Hamble. And if if you're using your Google Earth or Google's um, satellite view, if you change it from map view to um, 
photo view, you can see up the River Hamble, it's just a mass of white. It's got thousands and thousands and thousands of yachts, most of which never go anywhere, sadly, like any other harbour or marina. They just sit there for week after week after week. Um, but uh, the weekends, it's like yacht soup in the middle of the Solent. Um, there's cruising, there's racing. There is just so much going on um, in the Solent. Um, and like I said, it's the it's the mecca for anyone who really sails or races in England. Hmm. Yeah, I'm looking at uh, Google Earth. That's my uh, standard. I don't usually use Google Maps. It's Google Earth. I'm always zooming in. And, yeah. Yeah, I can see. Uh, but you can probably see all the boats. Yeah, up, all the uh, boats lining that uh, yes. that entire river up there. And they're, they're moored out in the river, and then there's marinas. That's also, it, marinas yeah. and, and moorings in the middle of the river. Yes, yeah. it's uh, it's very busy. Looks like you got a uh, industrial port just around the corner there where... Uh, yeah, Southampton is very, very industrial. There's uh, an oil refinery um, just on the south end of, of Southampton, and it's got a massive chimney, which is due to be taken down in the not-too-distant future. It's been a landmark for, for decades down there, and there's been all talk of projects turning into, into like a, a rooftop restaurant, which I think will be a fantastic idea. Um, and uh, it, it, it's a massive landmark for people coming in and out of uh, Southampton and across into Cowes and that's a place called Calshot which you can probably see halfway between Cowes and Hamble or Hamble Le Rice as its full name is called um, and yes so uh, it's a really nice busy section of uh, water going across from Southampton to Cowes lots of ferries so there's uh, your normal traditional ferry that goes from Southampton into Cowes and they also have um, something called a red jet, which is a high-speed catamaran, which will do a good 40, 45 knots over the water, which takes half an hour to go from Southampton to Cairns. It's absolutely fantastic to be on. And I only used it for the first time about a year and a half ago. Every single time I've been to Cairns over the last eight years, it's always been on a yacht. So, uh, But some sailing actually started in Cairns a couple of years ago, so I used this, uh, this jet catamaran for the first time. And it'll hold about ooh, I mean, 200 people um, if it was f- completely full. And it just flies. It's every half an hour or so. And uh, great transport. Well, it looks like it's about five miles from Hamble over to Cowles then, isn't it? It's about that, yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I've never. So that's the area called the Solent then? <clears throat> yeah, so all the area that's north of the Isle of Wight or between the Isle of Wight and the rest of the mainland um, the people on the Isle of Wight call it uh, the North Island. They call England the North Island, uh, which is quite funny, I think. But, uh, yeah, so uh, Solent is that, n- that nice patch of water, which is about one and a half, two miles um, across, all the way from the Isle of Wight to the mainland. And that's where all the sailing mostly happens. There's, there's quite a few of the centres, of course, on the south coast, but that is by far the busiest bit of England's sailing. So it looks like it's pretty protected waters, is it? It is, yes. Um, yeah, it's very protected. You don't get much in the way of waves um, down there. Uh, although we did have a big storm come in at the start of Cow's Week, which is a big sailing week um, at the beginning. Uh, I went across. Sorry, I just had a missed call coming in. Um, sorry. Uh, um, so, uh, yes, there was a big storm coming in last August, and it stopped even stopped the ferries crossing the Solent for 20 
Mm, we're breaking up. I was on the bit. first. Uh, I was on the first ferry. Yeah, sorry. I was, again, some. Yeah, hold, was trying hold, to call me. Okay, we, we're getting um, a little bit of. Uh, uh, you're you're, <laughs> do, do you're you blacking out every now and then. Yeah. If you okay, need... let, let me. If you just pause there, I need. I'll send. It's my daughter that's trying to call me. Okay. I just need to tell her not to call me. So all right. Bear with hold, me. hold on. I'll just pause this. Yes. And you can talk to your daughter for all I care. All right. Yeah. All right, we had a little bit of an interlude. You needed to talk to your daughter, and now we're back. So if it sounded a little discombobulated before we came back, we'll just continue on. So, Okay, thank you, friend. Sorry yeah, about that. That's okay, no problem. Uh, okay, so now you've, you've been dinghy sailing. Now, lasers are great because you feel every little puff of wind in lasers, and that's what you're doing Indeed, now. Indeed, yes. And you do that near where you live? Yes, there's a, a lake called uh, Chelmarsh Reservoir. I think it was built around just over 50 years ago. Um, and it's uh, great for sports fishermen, and it's even better for, for dinghy sailors. It's deep water. It's over half a mile long, near three-quarters of a mile long. And uh, you can have a really good sail on it. Yeah, I've got a laser, but I very seldom get on it anymore. It's uh... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're, 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 they're a nice well they're an old style boat but they, they, they work they work well they're, they're simple enough to uh, to learn yeah let's uh, does your wife sail and talk to us about your family's sailing experiences okay um, no she doesn't sail she's not a sailor but we did have a family sailing holiday a couple of years ago uh, we went I, I recently I, three years ago I did my day skipper which is the equivalent of your ASA 103 or 104, I believe it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll chip in there. Many thanks uh, two or three years ago when you uh, allowed me to to listen to your ASA 103, 104 training. Uh, really enjoyed that as I was working towards my day skipper. So, uh, yeah, nice, a nice plug for your... Oh, thanks. Yeah, I'm glad it, I'm glad it helped. And yes, yes, indeed, indeed. So how, how much uh, material that was in the... Uh... What I provided in the ASA was actually covered in in what you study in in uh, England. Um, I think it was all very, um, although it's, it's three years ago now since I did listen to it. It was all, all as I was going through it. It was all relevant, and as you say, you learn better when you when training is delivered with anecdotes. Mm-hmm. And you certainly added plenty of anecdotes to uh, to your training, which was great listening. Um, so yeah, I always like listening to, uh, your podcasts and your podcast was the very, very first podcast I ever listened to. <laughs> I hadn't listened to podcasts before until four or five years or so ago. And, uh, I was searching for sailing, I was searching for something to do with the Mediterranean and yours was the one that pinged to the top of the list. Oh, good. And, yeah. uh, and, and your podcasts have kept me awake many, many hours while I've been driving on roads late into the night or early in the morning or just driving around the uk you know a while back and i think a couple years ago and i've been looking for this email from a woman and she tells me that she loves my voice and i put her to sleep when she starts listening to my podcast (laughs) and i've been looking for that and i can't find that email but i just Uh. remember her saying i put her to sleep i thought hmm, i'm not sure Uh. that's so good well, you've got a very calm, soothing voice, so it, it works both ways. But if you're listening to, to your content, then it, it's something to, to keep the mind focused. Yeah, yeah. All right, so just give us, a, an, you know, what, what do you find uh, the most enjoyable or what do you like to, uh, to do when you go sailing and, and where have you sailed then? Right, okay. Um, 
the one thing I like, I do a lot of racing, and it's not all about racing. I do mm-hmm. like cruising as well. It's, it's nice where you can just sit back and put the autopilot on and, and just enjoy the, the breeze and the gentle motion of the boat as, you, as you're going from place to place. But I, I do like the racing aspect. And the, the best aspect, or the, my most enjoyable aspect of the racing is all the pre-start manoeuvres. I don't know whether mm-hmm. you've ever done much in the way of racing friends. Well, that's how I learned to race. Uh, that's how I learned to sail as, as yes, by racing. Yes. So, and I always tell yes. people, uh, and I say this over and over and over again, if you want to learn to sail, get on a racing crew because you're going to make yes. all, all of your mistakes at somebody else's On expense. somebody else's <laughs> boat. Yeah, that's it. Exactly. Exactly. So, see, I always love the, the, the pre-start manoeuvring and getting ready and being as close to the gun as you can be when you cross the start line. And it's all about being in the best position on the start line um, when you're racing. So, uh, so yeah, that's something I, uh, I, I do really enjoy. And I've done a fair bit of racing. So the first, my first ever week back in 2012 um, was a week of racing around the cans, as, as we, we call it. I don't know whether you call it around mm-hmm. the cans. but we racing, around, yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. around fixed marks in the Solent. There's... Oh, there's probably out some 70 or 80 fixed marks around the Solent that can be uh, used for racing. Um, and you also get clubs that will add temporary marks as well in the form of uh, big inflatable markers. So um, four days of racing around the cans and one day of that particular week, we aim to sail around the island. So we go all the way anti-clockwise around the Isle of Wight which is about some 55, 60 miles or so, which could take anything from on an average 37-foot boat, which is the, what kind we normally hire. Uh, normally takes anywhere between 9 and 11 hours. Okay. So, so it's, a, it's, a, it's a long day. It's a long yeah, day. You're, you're yeah. up very early, of course. So what sort of – now, when you say you hire a boat – you, do you have a skipper that owns a boat, or do you hire a boat as a as a crew and then go sailing? Yeah. So, as a society, um, the, the civil service they will um, hire these boats from. There's several companies on the south coast, but we try and hire a matched fleet of boats. So they're all the same brand, model, and all got the same equipment. Um, and the one we use at the moment and have done for the last six or seven years is a place called Fairview. They're on the Hamble, and mm-hmm. they've got. They must have about maybe twenty or more um, Beneteau Oceanis thirty sevens, and they're a nice modern French boat, um, easy to operate, easy to sail. Um, it has a coach roof traveller, so you're not messing about too much with um, the traveller where it can be a bit dangerous where it's near the helm. Hmm. So so. Now, explain to me the civil service uh, organization. So is this a yacht club or is just a, a group of you that, that do this? Yeah, it's open to anyone that's in the civil service or uh, has been in the civil service. And I think also their relatives as well. Hmm. Um, and it's, a night, it's an annual event, this uh, interdepartmental offshore regatta. But there are also uh, civil service clubs around the UK. I think it's about three or four that uh, own a boat. And uh, they take their boats around Scotland, around northern Europe, and down into northern Spain and uh, France and Biscay even. So, yes, they um, you can 
join these clubs you can they will advertise on their own internet or intranet sites and if you've got the right qualifications you can be the skipper and take crew along or you can if somebody's short you can apply to be crew and uh, go along with them it's something i've not done myself but uh, lots of people talk about it and write about it in the civil service publications and facebook user groups that um, they all seem to be having a, a great time when they're away cruising hmm. i've never heard of a civil service uh group in, in the united states doing anything like this so. <laughs> uh yes there may be there may well be departments that, that do that but maybe they don't publicize them too much yeah. out of their circles well that's interesting so now the crew you race with do you race with the, the same group of people consistently or do you hop from boat to boat um we it's a, it's a, probably a small core of maybe two or three that will always hire the boats or will be the signatories signing off for the waiver of damage on a boat. So they may, may well be the usual skipper. So I've had the usual skipper for the last two or three years. And before then, I had the same skipper for another three or four years. Um, and you see some old faces and you'll see some new faces from time to time. And this regatta that we go on, they'd, they'd be probably put out between between 12 and 18 boats in a good year. So uh, there can be quite a few people on the water. Hmm. That's interesting. So from, you... from all sorts of departments. So there will be um, police departments, there will be accountancy departments, there's inland revenue, there's the meteorological office, um, and there's an offshore sailing club. And I'm in the offshore sailing club hmm. uh, boat and it's with them that I've uh, done some sailing uh, further afield, which we can uh, talk about shortly. Yeah, let's talk about that now. <laughs> okay, right. Um, well, uh, nearly two years ago, uh, February 2018, saw me going across to Antigua, and we had hired a boat, a Beneteau First 40.7, um, and we sailed in the Caribbean 600 race. Hmm. It was uh, it was a very very windy start to the or end to the to, to the Caribbean racing season, and where I was expecting 15 knots, maybe gusting 20, and nice leisurely sailing, it was 25 to 30, gusting 40, um, and we bailed after the first uh, 24 hours after doing about some 200 miles uh, because one of our crew was extremely ill. I was ill as well, but he was more ill than me. And uh, we bailed out at St. Kitts and took him to hospital there where he had some treatment. And I think he was uh, infused with IVs and he looked a lot better when he came out of hospital a few hours later. Hmm. So, uh, so, we had, so we had an unscheduled stop. So he, uh, so he was so sick from from uh, seasickness. Is that what the cause of the illness was, or did he have? Um, he, he, he turned up in Antigua not feeling too well anyway, not looking too well. So uh, he might have come with something anyway. And he said he was always immune to seasickness. And in fact, he was our navigator, so he spent all his time below decks anyway. So um, whether. It was a bit of seasickness thrown in with whatever he might have come across with. We'll never know. But, uh, yes, that uh, put paid to our 600-mile race uh, then. 
But it was it was a tough old race, and fewer than half the boats that entered, there were some 80 boats enter, and over half of them uh, didn't make it. They copped out for a variety of reasons, either physical injury, boat malfunctions. We did things like we broke the table in the middle of our boat. Um, the toilet got sat on and went, went hitting a big wave, and that collapsed as well. There was a rip in our jib. And, uh, yes, our boat wasn't looking too good after 24 hours. So it was, it was a tough old race. Oh, I shall be going back to it again in 2020. So uh, I'll be going back to the Caribbean in a, three or four short months. Oh, that'll be fun. That'll be fun. Hopefully yes, you'll have better yes. weather. I hope it'll be a bit different to last <laughs> time. Yes, yes. I've never sailed in Antigua. I have sailed in the British Virgin Islands, but I've never – in the U.S. Virgin Islands, but uh, – that's the only place in the – well, I shouldn't say that. I also took a powerboat from Puerto Rico up into the Turks and Caicos one time as well. But uh, that's an area that I just have not sailed that much. Yeah, the, the, the waters are beautiful and clear. Uh, it's very nice there. But it's a massive, massive sea change between walking around the harbour and seeing the amazing yachts and motor yachts and super – and even mega yachts that they have there – and then you walk a, a hundred or two hundred yards away, and it's a very, very poor island. Um, internet connectivity is almost non-existent. Well, it certainly was only two years ago. Even when I went to an Airbnb after the race, they had Wi-Fi there, and it was no different to any pub Wi-Fi or any three or four G on a phone. It's very intermittent. You could not upload a video, and even just doing some basic web surfing was extremely slow. I don't know whether it's a permanent thing or whether it was just seasonal, but um, it seemed like the country is uh, very poor and, 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 and poorly uh, funded with its uh, internet and maybe and other services. There were power brownouts, and even one day we had no water in the house for most of the day. So uh, I think they were going through difficulties there. So but is that, beautiful people, is that the beautiful fir- people. Is that the only time you've been to the uh, the Caribbean then? Yes, I've, that's the only time I've been across the Atlantic. Okay. So, uh, yes. Right. So let's make sure we cover all the places in England that you sail. So the Solent's your primary primary playground then, other than the laser sailing that you're doing on the uh, on the reservoir, correct? Yeah, the Solent's the, Solent's the primary one. I have sailed further southwest. Um, I sailed in Dartmouth a couple of times, uh, most recently in August this year. Um, there, there was Royal Dart Week, uh, which uh, is hosted by the Royal Dart Yacht Club in Dartmouth. Um, it's a beautiful uh, sailing, fishing town um, up a river. So again, it's nicely well protected, good access for very large boats, as well as lots of sailing boats all the way into the town of Dartmouth. And uh, a beautiful old yacht club right on the water on the opposite bank to the main town in Dartmouth. There's regular ferries running across to the town there. And uh, I had uh, four days of sailing on, again, somebody else's boat, which was uh, very nice, very generous. Again, it's uh, the internet is great for putting sailors and boats and captains together. And that's how I have got on so many of these boats over the last few years. <laughs> Have you done anything in the Mediterranean yet? Yes, yes. I've I've been to the Mediterranean, um, let me think, three times. Yes, three times. So um, first time I went sailing in the Mediterranean was just over two years ago, 
this is when I took the family sailing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd done my day skipper, so that enabled me to hire a boat and went on a flotilla holiday um, out of Greece. And you're going to want to na- meet me to name all these places, aren't you? No, I can um, probably yeah. name them for you. So <laughs> okay, so so it was uh, a place called Paleros, um, which is uh, in western greece uh not too far from an airport about half an hour from an airport and there's a large nielsen harbor about a mile away from there but there's another small place um, near the village of paleros and there's a yacht charter company there and they do flotilla holidays and so i took the holiday the family on a holiday there two years ago which was lovely the weather was nice the skipper and his hostess who had a boat to themselves, who led us from port to port and harbour to harbour, and we did things like anchoring. It was, yeah, there were a few, a couple of restaurants where we, you could um, lazy line outside, or there were some bays where you would anchor and moorstone to off the rocks or bow to off the rocks if it was particularly shallow in a very sheltered bay. And then, of course, you had to go to the local taverna that was hosting you, uh, your boat, uh, very cheap mooring in Greece, no costs at all in Greece to uh, um, moor the boats at all on that flotilla. And that was, that was really nice. I, I love Greece, and as and when I do get a yacht, I will have it in Greece somewhere. Yeah, I've been to that harbour. I've sailed into that harbour, and there's a new one. I don't remember seeing the last time I was there, just to the south of Pelaros then. That's the that, that yeah that, that that's the Nielsen one. They they must have two hundred or two hundred and fifty yachts in the, okay. in that harbour, okay. and it's all Nielsen company boats. Okay, okay, yeah. And it, it's uh, that yeah, and I know you pl- fly into uh, Previsa Airport is where you're flying into. That's it, Previsa. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, that's it. Yeah, nice protected sailing. That's uh, that's uh, very very protected sailing. But the only downside of it is become so popular that it's extremely crowded everywhere you go. It is very busy indeed. I remember one day uh, two years ago scanning the horizon with binoculars, and as I did a three sixty, I counted over one hundred sails. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And every every little harbor you go into, you've uh, you're going to be just jam packed nowadays in there. So. Yes, it gets busy down there. <laughs> it gets, yeah, but it's it, it's it's very cheap in Greece. Um, lot different to going into Italy or places like Sardinia. So this uh, was a so this was a flotilla, and in a flotilla, yeah. you had your family on on your boat. Did you have anybody other than your family on the boat that you had? No, it was, it was our family. So myself, my wife, my two daughters, and my eldest daughter's boyfriend was with us. So five on board. It was a Beneteau 393, which is a 39 feet long Beneteau. Mm-hmm. Um, very solid boat, very well put together. Um, yeah, a very nice boat. And uh, I actually sailed on that boat again, the exact same boat, in May this year. Oh, really? Okay. Um, we, <clears throat> we haven't talked about my work yet, but I'm a photographer. I left the civil service uh, eight years ago uh, as uh, I'd started about three or four years before then, starting doing work in photography, did a wedding here or there, worked for one or two other photographers, saw how they did what's called event photography, where they where you can print a photograph and sell a photograph, all sorts of events do that kind of thing. And so I built up my business 
and was earning enough to leave the civil service. So uh, I now just uh, work as a self-employed photographer. Hmm. So, it's, 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 you know, that's yeah. a I, I've always thought that being a photographer is a pretty tough way of making a living, but you've found a niche then. Yes, yeah. Um, very happy that I have uh, found it because it gives me a lot of time to be with the family or do things that I want to do. Of course, one of which is go sailing. Uh, if I have work that I can't fulfill, I know a good circle of other local or national photographers who I can usually call at a short notice and say, would you like to do this job for me? And sometimes... I can give them the job or sometimes I can still earn money while they're doing the job for me. I will take a commission from them. And we have works both ways. So photographers will call me up with work asking me to do the same. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a nice job and it gives me the time to do the kind of things I want. So um, I went back on that boat again back in May because I emailed the flotilla company uh, just over 12 months ago saying, uh, I'm a photographer, I really enjoyed my holiday with you. Uh, would you like a video shooting for ab to advertise your flotilla business? And, uh, and they said yes. So I had a boat free for a week, and uh, I just had to go out there and do some filming. Sadly, it wasn't school holiday time. They didn't want to put their boat out for free to somebody uh, in peak season, uh, and as my wife is a teacher, sadly she could not come with me. So another good photographer friend of mine came with me, and just the two of us on a boat for a week uh, had a lovely time sailing and filming gigabytes of movies and drone work and taking photo photographs that uh, were all passed back to the company. And... Uh, currently in the process of finalizing their their video for them so oh, that, so that's quite nice so a little bit of trade then play for trade then indeed and the next thing will hopefully be that off the back of this will be getting properly paid work from it so it's <laughs> it's a it's a new venture for me and uh, my sailing buddy sam who uh, who i went out with he used to be in the royal navy um had, he's not done a lot of sailing but uh, he really likes the sailing. He's got the sailing bug himself now. So uh, I can see us doing uh, a bit of work together on boats and off boats in different places. Let's talk about where you've sailed in the Ionians. So from Paleros, did you, you <coughs> probably went down to Meganesi Island. And yes, so uh, we've, we've been to Meganesi. Meganesi, I've been to two different places on Meganesi. Um, my map's being a bit of... It's, slow to load up i've been to the north yeah we went to the east coast two years ago and went into that inlet on the north coast the large inlet on the north coast my map's not telling me where it is Vathy. yes went into Vathy okay, this Vathy, year that yeah. mm -hmm. is uh, very pretty very pretty i uh, i remember early one morning sending my my drone up and did a video of uh, the harbor there and Got some lovely photographs picturing the whole that whole inlet. Very, very pretty there. Mm -hmm. and lots of little anchorages around the north end there, as long as the weather's right. Yes, yes. Lots of little places where you can... It's not too far to tuck into if the wind's blowing from the, the wrong direction for the, from in one port. You haven't got far to go to be protected in another. 
yeah, yeah. I there was a bay that we went into, and I can't remember. Oh, I I'm looking at the uh, the island on Google Earth, but my wife and family were with me, and it was on one of those little legs that come out, and we uh, we were looking for a spot to drop our anchor. I'm looking on the chart, and we see. Uh, I I know where I want to go. There's this nice, really well protected little bay, and and as we're coming in there, we see this boat just coming right out of that bay as fast as they can, and we thought, oh great, we can go in there and get that spot, and we pulled in there, and as soon as we pulled in there, we were attacked by hordes of wasps oh, no. <laughs> we turned oh. around and and did exactly what the other boat did we just turned around <laughs> and got the heck out of there and i think as we were coming out there's another boat going back in there to take the spot that i just abandoned so oh no <laughs> See, that's, that's oh. something i've never seen on, on, on the boat i've never seen things like wasps the only thing i've experienced of in the iodian is lots of cicadas chirping away on the hillsides mm-hmm. they, make yeah. a, they make a hell of a racket at evening time and eventually either i go to sleep first or they go to sleep first did you get down to ithaca island as well when you were there yes been to ithaca as well uh, looking at my map probably keone and Fricus. yes yes keone and freak has been to both of those on the two different times i've been there so yes did, did you go around to the main town of vathe there as well uh, I think we might have done that two years ago. Okay. So, yeah, okay. yeah yes, I, yes, I remember we did go to Vathy. There was um, a lovely restaurant in Vathy called Mills. Uh, it, it goes all, it sort of zigzags up the hillside there. And uh, it's got a sister restaurant um, in Megadissi. And went to that as well this year. And excellent, excellent food both times. So, uh, yeah, two beautiful places. How far south have you been on the Ionians? Did, have you ever been down to the Zakynthos? No, we've, I've not gone any further than, than about, uh, where are we? Halfway down Kefalonia? No, probably. yes, 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 yeah, halfway down, yeah. That, it was because it was just, that, that's the only saying that we've done there. So, uh, so yeah, about 20 miles south of uh, Paleros and, uh, and all the way back again. Yeah, I've so, been as far as far. of uh, is the name of this Peronos Bay, or Lefkis on uh, Kefalonia, but I've never been south of there myself. And I've talked to quite a few sailors that make a big effort to get down to Zenkinthos, and uh, so that's one place I haven't been yet. And I plan on maybe going there next year. We'll see. We'll see. Mm. So Greece has been your primary primary Mediterranean uh, destination then. Uh, well, yes, only because I've had three sailing holidays in the Mediterranean, and two of them have been Greece. Uh, so, yeah, there's uh, there's one other, and we went to Italy this July, early August. Mm. Um, it was, again, the good old internet, and there is a website called Crew Bay. Um, there's also ones called Crew Search and Crew Seeker and things like that, where owners of boats are either looking to share their boat with people or to work it as a business and this is more of a boat share shared costs kind of uh, holiday and so my wife and i went out and uh, flew out to italy uh, we went to naples and flew to naples and then got a taxi down to just under vesuvius called torre del greco 
and met the owner of a boat there and had eight nights on his boat. He had a 53-foot Beneteau. And we had the front cabin, which is very nice. It was as big as both or many hotel bedrooms, um, own ensuite and shower, cupboards, drawers, lots of room, much more room than, than every other boat I've been on before now. Hmm. And, uh, I'm on and the that web... was nice. I'm on the website, Crew Bay. Is that the one that you yeah. used? Okay. Yes, yes. That, for, the, for this time, it was, uh, it was Crew Bay. All right. Now, when you got on the boat, so you were it was a, a so you would share the expenses with the skipper. Is that what it was? So yes, yes, for for a relatively small amount. So in this case, it was fifty euros per night. Uh, we had the the front cabin, and there were shared costs for um, any fuel that he was going to use. But um, he was very interested in the fact that I had a drone with me, and we cut a deal again that if I gave him a video his boat sailing and as a little commercial for for him um i had uh, a nice bit of uh, money back on the deal so uh so yeah as we sailed across to uh, ischia so heading directly west pretty much out of torre del Rico, we had a nice day sail out to ischia and um filmed his boat from the air in my drone and he was over the moon with uh, with how the video looked so uh, he, he's, he's currently pushing that video out, getting his next year's bookings in, I'm sure now. It's, uh, you haven't sailed away from your drone yet then, huh? No, no. You, 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 you need to know how the drone works and have almost like have backup plans in place. So, uh, yes, I don't know if ever you've been on a boat where people have been launching or retrieving drones, but it's uh, a, a, even just a slight sea state um, is... Uh, gives the gives the owner a bit of apprehension shall i say so you don't feel the, the swell too much but you can clearly see what your swell is doing because the drone is rock steady and it, but it looks like it's going up and down because that's you going up and down on your boat so uh, you can't have too much swell if you wanted to catch your drone or even launch it and because it is uses gps as a lock you need to make sure that when it does launch it's, it's just going to fly backwards off the boat if you're doing four knots on the boat as soon as you launch it, that that drone is going to fly backwards at four knots because it's locked into the GPS system. So always launch it uh, off the back of the boat. Yeah, we had uh, Dan Dan <coughs> Culpepper on uh, on the podcast. I think maybe a year ago, and he was bringing his boat back from the Mediterranean, and they were sailing in the Azores, and they sent the drone up to follow them. And just like you said, you've got to make. They had uh, they had the drone following them. Suddenly, the drone turns around and starts heading back to where it took off from. And they <laughs> they had to chase yes. it down, and luckily, they got back just as the battery was going dead. So, oh yes, battery anxiety. Yes, it's never good, is it? Yeah. So you just have to make sure that you know the settings to avoid that situation. Then. Yes, yeah, so always have your batteries fully charged, of course, um, and you need to turn off the sensors. Although it sounds like a good idea having your collision avoidance sensors turned on, when you're coming back to the boat, you've got your backstay, you've got wires, you've got your boom, and also you've got the hand of the lucky person who's going to reach out and try and catch your drone. And if you're trying to, uh, to do that with your sensors on, the drone is going to avoid you. And so you put your hand out, the drone goes up out of the way. 
you bring the drone back down, you put your hand out, the drone goes back up out of the way. So lots of practice on dry land before you go out onto the boat and uh, and think through plan A, B and C uh, <laughs> in the same way with sailing. Always have your plan B and C sorted. Yeah, you would think collision avoidance is a good idea. So that's... Uh... That's... It's, it's it, yes, it's good when you're flying around trees and things like that, and back at home. But uh, yeah, turn it off when you're on the boat. Otherwise, you'll have great difficulty retrieving your drone. Huh. All right. So you've uh, did you get out to Capri as well as Ischia? Capri, yes. Capri was absolutely gorgeous. Of course, um, you've been there once or twice, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So we went into Marina Piccola, which is on the south coast. Uh, we didn't go into the main harbour. Um, the owner of the boat, Philippe, he, um, because we were sharing expenses, he was saying, well, it's going to be this amount if you want to anchor for free, or if you go into the main marina, it's going to be like some stupid amount. So when we eventually did go into Capri and looked down on the harbour, it was full of super yachts and not many smaller boats. So uh, so we moored for free, or anchored for free, should I say, uh, at Marina Piccola on the south coast, and then got the local bus into the town and had a had a lovely meal and wandered around um, the centre. Could be. We didn't go down into the harbour. Uh, we just stayed in the centre of the town, um, in the middle of the island, which is uh, which, so, so beautiful. Yeah, which is where you want to go. Now, I've anchored on yes. both sides. I've been into that marina on the north side, and then I've anchored on the south side. But I didn't go into where Marina Piccolo is. I went over to the uh, to the right of that a little bit, uh, a little farther. Yes, and uh, it's it was pretty rolly. Yes, it's, it's not. You got you got those three big. Ro- yeah, yeah. You got those three big rocks as you. Uh, if you we came around from the northeast, we came around clockwise around Capri, and you see those large three islands, big rocks looming out as you, as you come around the corner, and as you came around the corner under. Uh, Scoglio Ungi Marina if you're looking at that on the map um, it was super yacht soup it was 60, 70 metre super yachts dozens and dozens of them it was absolutely <laughs> incredible just coming around the corner there and I've never seen so many super yachts anchored in one place uh, absolutely fantastic some of those things and, and one of them had a helicopter and it landed and took off at one point while we were there well, well, super yacht. Well, they're not really super yachts unless they at least have one <laughs> helicopter, right? Yes, yes, that's it. Just the one, just the one anyway. You need at least one helicopter to be a super yacht. That's right. Yeah, yes. <laughs> well, good. So, yeah, so we, so we had a, a nice time on Capri um, this summer, and then we went back towards the mainland, and then we headed to uh, Nerano, which is on the south side of the peninsula, um, coming out from Italy there, um, which is the Amalfi Coast. Mm-hmm. Again, beautiful and expensive. Murano. I don't know that I've ever been. I've been to Positano, but I haven't been to Murano. Is that the name of it you said, Murano? Uh, yes. If, if you look on the map, it's about two or three miles in from the top of, from the bottom of the, Bay of Naples, the Gulf of Naples. Uh, it's the nearest point of land pretty much to Capri uh, on the south side of that peninsula. And the first marina you get to is Nerano. Um, and we did get a mooring ball there. The, the, um, 
the men who operate the marinas and the harbours and these mooring balls, they come out to you and they tout a business. But our skipper, Philippe, he had already been in touch with somebody because he stayed there before who gave him a relatively good deal, which I think was going to be something like 90 euros a night just to uh, moor up on a mooring ball. Mm-hmm. Um, but the weather was coming in from the southwest and there was no protection there, sadly. So we went clockwise around that peninsula, uh, about seven or eight miles, and all the way around to Sorrento. Okay. Which, okay. Uh, which, which, well, which was nice. Which, so is we an, had... uh, which is an all-weather port, yeah. Yes, yes. So uh, again, but again, we uh, we didn't go into the harbour. We anchored off Sorrento. Um, so again, uh, unlike Greece, where you can have three nights ashore, it's uh, you have anything to do is to anchor around this part of the Mediterranean if you want a free night on the water. So we had a lovely night in Sorrento, and then the next morning we went northeast uh, for about four or five miles, seeing if we could find anywhere else that was interesting to anchor up. But we found nothing, so we ended up going back towards Sorrento, and we had a really interesting, putting it mildly, night in Sorrento. The wind was still coming around from the southwest, but it was sweeping around the corner of the peninsula. And uh, Philippe's choice of anchoring position wasn't so good this night. We were on a lee shore. It wasn't far to the lee shore. We had a two-meter swell. The anchor was well dug in, dug in so uh, it was a good anchor, and we were very solid. But it was a lee shore, and we only had about 20 meters between us and uh, and the harbour, uh, which was a little bit unnerving. Uh, we'd just had uh, another young couple join us on the boat. He was from the Middle East and she was from Berlin. Uh, they were partners and they were both living in Berlin. Uh, they both spoke excellent English. She had never sailed. He had done a bit of sailing before now, uh, but they um, they were fairly green coming to sailing and as the next 24 hours wore on, it's, uh, I realised that Philippe, the owner of the boat, was actually quite green as well. We had talked about his sailing, and he'd, he'd bought the boat two years previously, but it looks like he had not done much sailing apart from the last two years. So um, so we had an interesting night. Uh, he wanted to moor the boat further down, nearer the entrance to the harbour, so it was a bit closer for us. But with the weather coming in from the west, it would mean we'd be going into the waves coming into the harbour and having already scoped out um, where we could take our tender in, we would get completely soaked heading west into the waves as opposed to heading east away and then coming around the Porto Sorrento. Um, So we knew we were going to get wet coming back to the yacht. So uh, we prepared for that. So got dressed up to go out for the night and because the waves were a good two metres of waves in a fairly underpowered tender um, we were good going downwind and down wave and then coming around into the harbour and then he took the boat back for the second trip um, again to to bring the the next two of us five of us would not fit in safely into his tender Mm -hmm. so we did two, two trips of three and then we went into Sorrento and then Nice, nice meal out in the town and then heading back to the boat. So going back to the boat, I went with Philippe and my wife and uh, 
back to the yacht, back on the yacht, a little bit awkwardly because of the two-meter swell uh, and the difference between the tender and the back of the boat getting onto it was a bit awkward, but we managed to get back in. So Philippe went back to get the other couple while we got ourselves showered and cleaned and desorted and dried off, uh, ready for them coming back. While we were waiting, there was somebody on the harbour wall uh, with a massive, massive searchlight pointing at us. We were, at this point now, the only yacht that was anchored there. There were larger yachts anchored earlier in the afternoon, but they all disappeared. They seemed to have better sense neither took refuge in the harbour or, or went somewhere better. But we were the only yacht there, and uh, this yacht was... This yacht, not this yacht, this um, people with this massive beam flashing towards us, shouting at us in Italian, which we could not understand. Um, there was a handheld VHF radio on the boat. Um, the main VHF radio wasn't working, so I turned on the handheld and nothing was coming over on Channel 16, so I uh, thought, oh, maybe it's just people just messing about. And then I was thinking, oh, I wonder if anything's happened to Philippe and his crew. Um, so I turned the radio back on and still nothing on the radio and then I could see Philippe and the other two crew coming around the corner heading back towards so all good and just as they got back to us the radio piped up and it was the harbour master that was on the radio saying that we were anchored in a very very unsafe position and we should move off out of there so we said yes we would try so we tried um and the anchor windlass failed after pulling in for about two meters. Mm. So we were, yeah, we were stuck. So we radioed back saying that we're happy with our anchor. Uh, we were going to keep an anchor watch that night. And uh, don't worry about us, we're fine. And he said, here's a phone number that we can be, that he can be called upon if we did need help or assistance that night. So we slept fitfully that night. Um, under a couple of different watches before the morning and we were going back for our flight back home the next day so we knew we needed to be off and out of the way so we got up early I think we were up for 6.30, 7 o'clock and went to try and work out what we needed to do with this anchor windlass it was going down but it was not going back up so something was wrong with the windlass and Philippe the boat owner didn't have a clue what to do. It was at this point that uh, I started to get a sense of how little experience he had because he didn't know what to do. Um, so I said, well, we need to winch the anchor up in another fashion. Do you have um, any other tackle? Um, where's my notes for this? Da, da, da. Um, so, the, uh, oh, yes. Um, Ask him if he had a snubber for the anchor and he said he he didn't know what a snubber was. <laughs> yeah, so he, he always anchored just on the on the windlass. So uh, oh. yeah, I went I went went into his anchor lock and I found a snubber. I found a metal snubber that I could attach to the anchor chain to pull it up. Um, it was unused. It had never been used. It was a brand new metal attachment for a snubber. So uh, I attached a line from the cockpit. Fortunately, he had um, electric winches in the cockpit because it was a nice big boat. It was 53 feet. Uh -huh. So uh, I attached a line to the snubber and uh, I could only pull up about a meter at a time. Mm -hmm. So on the, the, on the anchor chain. So pulled a meter, locked it off, calling back to the 
cockpit, release the line, could release the line, put the stubber down, pull another meter. It took about 20 minutes pulling up uh, very, very slowly, meter by meter. Mm-hmm. But eventually we had pulled up enough um, to come off the seabed and we, we could motor off then and... Uh, but, but I mean, how deep were you anchored at that time? Was it about um, the depth? The depth of the water it was, it was about twenty twenty five meters. Wow, uh, we wanted deep to, we then. wanted. Yeah. Yes, it went it went deep very quickly, which is why we were very close to the shore. He didn't have as much chain as, as it would have been nice to. The larger boats, when we were, arrived there, they were fifty, sixty, seventy foot boats, and they'd obviously got a load of chain on board, <clears throat> and they were anchored further out. They would probably drop the anchor in maybe about thirty to thirty five meters of water. But we ended up anchoring in about 16 to 20 metres, um, which left us quite close to the shore with about a four-to-one scope. So, so once so, you got uh, the anchor off the bottom, now you're starting to drift. Would you just would you keep bullet pulling it up? And yeah, uh, that's it. So, so, so we had to motor gently uh-huh. uh, while we finished pulling the anchor up. So we, we okay. were still under, under motor as we motored away. It was nice deep water, which is the plus side. We weren't going to catch the anchor on anything as we motored away from the coast so that was that was one plus side so uh we we left there and then we headed around to amalfi which was where we had got uh, our uh, bus booked to go back to naples for our flight the next day so uh we motored around there and uh, we had a nice day but uh, philippe was very quiet <laughs> uh, I think he, he realised that uh, it wasn't a position that he, he really should have uh, put his boat and his uh, and his crew into. No, so that was, a, that was... a good adventure, though. Good good stories yeah. come from it. it, yeah. it it's a story, <laughs> and I know, I know you always like stories. You, you you always talk about the tales that you can tell and stories. You like your stories. So, yeah, this is, this is my story of sailing. This is uh, a very interesting night and uh, and how we got out of it. Yeah, yeah. Um what kind of windlass was it, out of curiosity? Do you remember? Was it a Maxwell or something else? I don't know. I didn't look into probably, that. Me, I don't know. Yes. One of the other two. Yeah. Yes, no. You know, that's one of those things that I worry about uh, because you never know when a windlass will fail. And anything electric on a boat can fail at any time. And Always when you don't want it to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, so I've got a couple snubbers on board so I could pull up on one and... and tighten it up and then hook up the other one and then switch back and forth but it would take a long time to get anchors up that way it did it certainly did and just glad we had an electric winch yeah <laughs> i don't have an electric winch on my back yeah, the only electric yeah. is the uh, the windlass itself so yeah yeah okay well it sounds like you had some good adventures and uh, what are your plans for this next year then uh, right, so next year we'll be kicking off with the Caribbean 600 at the end of February. Mm. Um, that's my next book, Sailing on a Yacht. I may get something in the meantime, um, but it's unlikely. I think February's going to be the next bit of fair weather sailing I'm going to see. Um, and yeah, looking forward to that. It's not a cheap holiday. Uh, flights aren't cheap, and boat hire for a it's, it's going to be a much better boat compared to the one last time we had it was a racing boat and smashing over those or smashing into waves it was very very uncomfortable so we've got more of a cruising boat next year we've got a grand soleil 53 i believe it is so it's more of a cruising boat but it'll be a lot more comfortable if the, if the weather's not so kind to us and we should have between 10 and 12 crew on board 
Okay. Do you know any of the crew members you're going to be going with? Yeah, some of them will uh, are some of the same crew from two years ago. Okay, so you got so, friends uh, so that yes. are going to be uh, some fa- some familiar some good old familiar faces again, and uh, some new faces. All right. Anything else we should cover before we call it a discussion? Uh, I think that might be it. I think I've covered most of what I wanted to. Uh, I, t- I uh, mentioned briefly Cows Week. Yeah. Um, and that's a fantastic uh, celebration of yachting for all sorts of yachts. Everything from day sailing dinghies to, uh, to large yachts. And I went on something which is very unusual. You don't see it anywhere else in the world apart from in cows. And I've sailed on two Daring's. Uh, it's a class of, it's a class, I think there's, there's only about 25 or 30 of them um, in existence, and they're all in cows. I think one or two might have been shipped abroad, but for, for racing, they're all in the harbour. If anyone sails into cows, as you go into the harbour on the left-hand side before you come to the marinas, um, a lot of those boats are where the Daring's are moored. And they're a very classic, very long, sleek design where the bow, long overhanging bow and long overhanging stern and extremely wet, even in moderate waves of maybe half a metre that we might have seen uh, in Cowswick this year. You are getting soaked no matter where you are on the boat, even on the helm that I was on for one boat for two races. um, Yes, you're getting completely soaked all the time. But uh, they're good fun. They, you, you know you're on the water in, with boats like that. Well, now, how would you spell it? Because I try to look it up on Google Earth. Daring. And... So, uh, oh, cows. Cows is C-O-W-E-S. Well, I know it's cows, a... but is it uh, yes. boats or darings? D-E-R-R? So, so D-A-R-I-N-G. Okay, daring boats. Okay. And you... You oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So the, so the, the very, a, very long couple... overhang and and front and back. Yes, and, very, uh, very classic, very classic shape. And I, th- I think they were designed in early fifties. I think they were mostly all built between nineteen fifty and nineteen sixty. And one or two boats have uh, have come out of newer molds since then. But uh, yeah, and it's a very classic shape and uh, very unique to uh, to cows. Was there much of a tide or many much of a current around cows? Yes, you get a massive current in the Solent. Um, the current will go easily four, four and a half, five knots, depending on what the state of the tide is, going east to west or west to east. And so the strategy with all the racing around there is how deep it is, how shallow it is, whether you get a favourable favorable tide, whether you need to go inshore or offshore, um, you might get back eddies nearer the shore in places. And there are one or two publications where every hour it will show you what the tide is doing um, in certain places. Some people have spent a lot of time either in boats or with measurement devices or dropping things into the water, seeing how fast they go, working out what tide does in certain places at certain states of tide. And uh, that is key for any racing in the Solent. Uh, tide varies extremely uh, between near onshore and further into the middle of the Solent. And then, of course, you're having to dodge massive tankers, car ferries, container ships, people ferries that are, that are coming up narrow channels uh, in the Solent. 
they're restricted by the depth to movement and so you need to keep out of their way and there's quite a famous video if you go onto youtube of where some poor sailor got his spinnaker caught on a big tanker's anchor about six or seven years ago and uh the bass was snapped, somebody jumped off the boat, it's all recorded on camera and I think it was being broadcast as well by Cows Radio or Cows TV because it was middle of Cows Week and uh, yes, it was very unfortunate and uh, the person was taken to court and he was hauled over the coals hmm. um, he, yes, he was uh, fined a relatively large amount um, and I believe the court costs were crippling so uh, Yes, you, you've got to play safe and keep out of the way of those big ships there. Yeah, I'm going to look for that YouTube video. Maybe I'll put a yes, link to it on yes. the, uh, in the show notes. Yes, yes, do that, do that. It's, it's, it's a lesson to everyone that how fast these large ships travel. They, they're still doing 10 to 15 knots as they, as they come down the channel in the Solent before turning just north of Cowes to go up the Solent because in the middle, right in the middle of that patch of ocean, just above Braithead's Cows, there's a place called Bramble Bank, and at certain spring tides, it will actually dry out and uh, it's visible. And there were, I think there's famously one day every summer at spring tides that people will go out there and be ferried out and they will play, play cricket on the middle of this bramble bank <laughs> in the middle of the sound. It's, uh, I've never seen it, but I've heard of it. People will do that uh, on, on a regular basis at spring tide in the summer. But no, the, the the large ships have to have to avoid, of course, this this bramble bank, and uh, they they make a big L shape as they come in from the east, from the continental side, as they come past cows, and they, then they turn north to go up towards the Solent. Uh, large ships, ferries, massive massive ferries, and uh, super super cruisers, liners, and tankers. They all go up into Southampton for fuel processing, refueling, and of course Southampton is a big port for for cruise liners. So all the big cruise liners will go to Southampton as well for many, many cruises. Is that a large city? So yes, you, uh, yes, it's, it's a reasonably large city. It's, it's, I think it's certainly the largest city on the south coast. Okay, uh, you're going to find. So, so yes, it's, uh, it's you've got Portsmouth to the east of it as well. And that's got a lovely big harbour there. Um, Portsmouth is a very uh, a naval base, so warships uh, and. Uh, I think even submarines come in and out of Portsmouth. I think uh, I had Rory McDougall on uh, talking about his sailing around the world, and I zoomed in on on where he lives now, and it's somewhere around Portsmouth, as I recall. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's been fun talking to you. Uh, make sure you get me any links that you want me to reference to how people could get a hold of you if they if they're in England and they need a photographer maybe maybe they'll get a reach out to you so many many thanks yeah photography is my business and uh, and if it, it can, if it can involve sailing at the same time that's all fantastic um are you after anybody else to interview because i do know one or two people that might be interesting to, for you to speak to yeah send me some uh, send me send me some information and i would love to reach out to them because i'm always looking for people to talk to that have good stories to tell Absolutely. I know one lady who runs her own business um, in Cowes and in Hamble. Uh, her name is Susan Glenny, and she runs a yacht. Uh, she does training and racing in Europe and on the South Coast. So Susan Glenny will have many a tale to tell you. All right. I'll reach out to her. I'll send you her details. Thanks a lot, Richard.
I'm going to try to enlist your help in keeping this podcast going. I've been producing this podcast since January 23rd, 2012, and it's been a labor of love and <laughs> for the most part, a non-monetized labor of love. And I need some sponsors. So if you are interested in helping me keep this podcast going, I would like to encourage you to think about and perhaps recommend companies or people who you think might be sponsors of this podcast. And let me give you a little bit of information which would help bolster the argument that they should sponsor this podcast. This podcast has been in continuous production since January 23rd, 2012. It's the oldest continuously running sailing podcast out of the 500,000 plus podcasts available in the iTunes directory. So far, there's been more than 425,000 downloads of this podcast. This podcast reaches a worldwide audience, the top countries of the United States, and then Great Britain, and then following that, Australia. So primarily the English language countries. 56% of our listeners are 45 to 54 years old, and 43.3% of our listeners are 55 to 64 years old. So this is a mature, affluent listener audience. 68.1% are men and 38.2% are women. This is a very strong community. I get quite a few emails from listeners and I try to engage with the listeners and get people on that they want me to interview. So if you write me a letter and you say, hey, you might want to talk to this person, I always try to reach out to the person you suggest and try to get them on for a podcast. So it's a, it's a fairly tight community. I consider my listeners my friends. So who should be interested in sponsoring this podcast? Well, this target market is a highly affluent boating community. And in 2016, the recreational boating market in the United States alone amounted to $36 billion. So people or companies who should consider sponsoring this podcast would be yacht charter companies, water sports apparel companies, boat equipment manufacturers, boat safety equipment suppliers, sailmakers, boat accessories such as eyeglasses, hats, and so forth, boat builders, and travel agencies, and anybody that's trying to market to this very specific niche community. I have more information available at the website, and I'm willing to talk and meet with anybody personally that's interested in being a sponsor for this podcast. Just write me, franz1 at medsailor.com. And I would really appreciate your help in keeping this podcast going. The website is www.medsailor.com or simply medsailor.com. M-E-D-S-A-I-L-O-R.com. Thanks. Life is short. In the end, all that really matters is the memories you make. So make a few. Go sailing.